Welcome to another episode of Victory Over Self Radio, a podcast that dives into all things athletics. On today's episode, we have Brandon Pig, head of physical preparation and assistant track coach at Priceville High School outside of Huntsville, Alabama. We talk with Brandon about how he got into his new role, that interview process, getting to know his coaches, and then what he looked for when he was searching for a new job. Then we dive into the science side of things of developing speed in the high school population, who his influences have been, and what training looks like with Coach Pig. It's a great episode. Hope you all enjoy. All right. Welcome back to Victory Over Self Radio. Today we have a phenomenal guest that has a huge Twitter following. If you guys aren't currently following Brandon Pig, make sure you do. And Ross was able to meet him and connect a little bit down in Florida at the clinic hosted by Simply Faster. We've all been impressed with stuff that he's posting uh, from conversations with Ross, just uh, you know the the guy that he is, the coach that he is. We're excited to have him. So Brandon is uh, down in Ole, Alabama. So we are uh, spreading across the U.S. here, and he could tell us a little bit more about that. But first, with that, Brandon, uh, you don't have the traditional kind of title for somebody in your position. You're actually the director of physical preparation down there at Priceville. So talk to us a little bit about how that happened. Uh, since you've been there starting in May, I believe, right? Yeah. So back when we were kind of finishing up the hiring process, I actually ran into our assistant principal at the uh, sectionals track meet for us. And so we were just kind of chatting up and he was like, hey, man, what do you want your title to be? And so we kind of talked back and forth on it. And we wanted to make sure intentions were clear from the very top, from the moment you read what my title is and what my job description is, exactly what I'm gonna do here. So we talked through it. Um, Another option we were gonna look at was the same one that Cody Hughes had at Madison Academy, which was director of human performance. But we liked physical preparation a little bit better. I think human performance dips into a whole lot of areas and could carry some, I don't wanna say extra baggage, but some extra duties that may not be within the scope of a strength coach's practice. So we felt human or uh, physical preparation did a really good job of like, okay, this guy's going to prepare us to be able to be good at our sport and handle the demands of our sport. That's awesome. And I mean, full disclosure here, I did a, a good stalk on your Twitter feed. And again, I, I highly suggest guys, yeah, you you follow Brandon. But uh, back on, I, I wrote this one down. So it was July twenty second. You wrote about your coaches having a growth mindset, and that's kind of, at least in you know my experiences, kind of out of the ordinary uh, a little bit. And so uh, you're you're at this school. You have admin who are on board with. Let's have this good title that doesn't kind of put you in a box. You're with coaches that have a good growth mindset. So give us an idea. What else are you able to help your coaches with while you are there, right? Are you getting uh, detailed into kind of some practice plans and some weekly layouts, things like that? So right now I'm trying to trickle it. One thing I learned Uh, being an intern and eventually assistant for Cody Hughes. And I say learned, the approach I used worked. I didn't come into Madison Academy being gung-ho on, all right, day one, here's all the opportunities I see to get better, let's change it. I don't think that's the best way to go about 
trying to bring change. And I want to start by saying, I don't think a ton of change needs to be brought to what awesome. they're doing because they are growth minded and they're already so far ahead of where a lot of people are cur would currently be at or would normally be at. But I think the biggest first step in any of those plans is you need to number one, provide value for those coaches. And number two, you need to help build trust and build relationships with those coaches. I've only been here for two months. If I spent these first two months saying like, all right, guys, here's everything we're going to change. I'm going to criticize your practice programs from top to bottom. And I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to change and what you need to do to be a better team. Mm, that's probably not going to go super well. So we're getting to the point where it just naturally comes up in conversation. And so some of the things like this is a completely different rabbit hole that I'm going to yeah, briefly touch it. on, but absolutely mm -hmm. not drop down. But I don't know if you guys know a guy named Ty Burt. He's the strength coach and linebackers coach at Buckhorn High School in Huntsville, Alabama. He doesn't tweet much. I mentioned it on John Mark Raspberry's podcast. I think we should all bully Ty into sharing his opinions because Ty is really okay. smart. But so Ty called me the other night to talk about conditioning and it was kind of tying together a few Twitter threads I had about either football coaches making observations that they look out of shape week one, regardless of what conditioning they did and how baseball pitchers experience an absolutely insane average heart rate during innings. If we looked at the kind of cardiovascular demands of a pitcher, you would never stop and say like, you know what? I bet that guy's heart rate's sitting at about 170 for the entire inning. But it is, and that's its average. And it's gonna dip up, it's gonna dip no lower than about 140 and it's gonna get up into the 190s. And so we were talking about how the psychological demands of the game are gonna impact your heart rate. Because right now, if one of you guys got a text from you know your wife, your kids, yeah. someone important to you that says like, hey, something's wrong, boom, your heart rate's gonna spike. And so you think about a game, we can sit here and we can say like, all right, for football, we're going to use six seconds on, 30 seconds off work to rest ratios. We're going to build up to kind of a worst case scenario drive. Some people say that's 12 plays. Some are going to say it's more like 18 to 20. And then we're also going to touch on the low, more extensive end. And we're going to do some kind of more high density metabolic circuits. We're going to touch on the high intensity end. We're going to get max velocity sprinting with full rest in between. It's going to be a really robust conditioning program and we're going to look great week one. But at no point of any of those conditioning methods, did you expose psychological stress to the athletes? And so Ty also made the point that how many coaches are lining up in team D and telling the scout offense to snap the ball before the defense is set. Those things all add psychological wow. mental mm -hmm. stress that you're not going to see in conditioning or in a normal practice. And so those are conversations that I'm kind of starting to have with the football coach about how, what if one of the reasons, what if, what if we just expose the players to chaos mm -hmm. for maybe just 10 minutes a week in practice? Will that give us a jump going into week one, especially if we have freshmen playing that have never been exposed to that psychological stress and that big kind of like in the moment feeling that players experience, if you're 14 years old, you may not have ever felt that before. So if we start triggering that in now, does that give us an advantage come week one? Awesome. 
So those are the type of conversations I'm having. My basketball head basketball coach for the men's, he's been helping me run our middle school camps. And so me and him have gotten tons of time to talk and we've had very similar conversations. And those are things that just come up naturally. I'm not really looking to critique practice designs there. We're just all looking to be the best we can. And so we're in an environment where everybody's always talking about how we can we get better. There's going to be tons of opportunities to talk about ways to get better. Mm. That was a great answer and a great kind of a rabbit hole. And I could share <laughs> just kind of personally from my experiences, I had uh, one of my women's hockey teams with heart rate monitors on. We're at the national championship game. And our goalie, even when the puck was in the complete total opposite end, if you're familiar with uh, like heart rate readouts, uh, she was in the yellow or above. So she was in like a lactic environment for the entire period. Didn't matter where the puck was, what kind of action was going on on the ice. She was just psychologically stressed or like uh, college students tend to do. They go, this is a big game. I'm going to take this pre-workout or this Red Bull or you know, caffeine and jack themselves up. And so I, I kind of want to reword my question a little bit now to you, uh, after that answer. And for me personally, being at the college level, I get a lot of interns, GAs who kind of move on. It seems like it wasn't an accident that you landed at the school that you were at. It seemed like you were very calculated throughout the application and interview process. So can you just kind of, you know, g- give us a slight idea into your mind as you were going through these interview processes and how did you find a school with the admin that have the mindset that they have and coaches with the growth mindset that they have? Cause it seems like a great position that you ended up in. And I don't think that was a mistake. It absolutely is. It's a phenomenal position. And it, I mean, it makes me feel bad sometimes because some of my friends that also recently took jobs, they'll tell me about their experiences and it's the exact opposite. Mm. And they're like, dude, how do you deal with stuff like this? And it's like, well, yeah, I don't. And so it's like, I can't really relate to those kind of pains you're going through. But so the first step in this application process was being at a great place before Mm. this that kind of helped me to have high standards. If you've always been, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, we all know the guy or the girl that's always been in toxic relationships. And as soon as one ends, they jump straight into another one. If you're a strength coach that's always had like mentally or physically or whatever else abusive coaches or admin, and you leave that job or you get fired and you start looking for another job, it doesn't matter how many red flags pop up in the interview process. You've become conditioned to that, you know, poor environment. So step one was being at Madison Academy with Cody, where we also had great administration and great coaches. And so that helped me build high standards. So there were a few other places that kind of sent out feelers and like unofficial interviews before I landed like with Mm -hmm. Priceville. And there were always things that I was just like, I don't really think that's the perfect fit for me. I don't want to go somewhere that I don't think is perfect. And so Priceville... Number one, they, I mean, one thing that really wowed me from the beginning was they told me they were going to give me all the way up until May to make a decision when we first started talking in December, because they were aware that like 
it was entirely possible that if things went differently with enrollment, that Madison Academy could have offered me a much larger contract than they did. And also some things with track could have landed in my lap. And so they told me straight up, like, look, we understand if you wind up having a better situation there, we understand that where you're at trying to, you know, start a family and like get married to your girlfriend, it makes more sense for you to take that. So we're going to give you that full amount of time to make a decision. And they also straight up told me they're like, but like they didn't, they weren't passive about it. Like they straight up told me, they're like, look, this is the offer we're making you. This is the offer we made to the other two applicants that applied for this job. We're offering you more money. We want you to be our guy. And so they were very vocal about that. And they wanted me to know, like, you're wanted here. You're our guy. We want you. And that meant a ton to me. Like having someone say, like, you're our guy. You're not our second choice. That tells me that, like, from top to bottom, like, they are bought in and they do want me there. Also, the way this position is funded is the superintendent, like, nothing to do with our county pays for my job. Wow. The way they paid for this is this time last year, they sat down for a meeting and they said, what is one thing we could do to make Priceville a better place for all of their athletes? And so people tossed around all kinds of different ideas. And finally, what they said, we need a strength coach. How are we going to pay for it? And so what they did is they decided every single sport, no matter what the size of your sport is, we're going to take 15% of all your fundraising funds. We're going to put it in an account and we're going to pay a strength coach with it. And football, even the way they were able to make a bigger offer to me than they were to the other applicants is the football department chalked in a little bit of extra money to get that offer number up a little bit higher. So I knew that like Hmm. coming in, I'm going to a place where this isn't, you know, like everybody says you value your first car that you bought more than you value your first car that you Mm. got. So if it was the superintendent just handing them a strength coach, maybe they value me, maybe they don't. But when every single program is paying for me, I know dang well that they're all bought in and they have skin in the game. Good. Yeah. And then, so kind of the final piece of me making the decision of, okay, I'm going to be here is I came in for another kind of unofficial interview with our assistant principal. And he said, Hey, how about you? Uh, coach Foster, he's our head football coach. He's like, he's got PE next period. How about you just go sit in there and talk with him for a bit? And so I'd never met Coach Foster, walked in there, sat down. And the head football coach at an Alabama high school is. Yeah. 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 He's probably higher than the governor in a yeah. lot of people's minds. <laughs> so I knew that was a big test. And I, I mean, like I said, I knew that he'd done a great job turning the program around because I went to a high school that played Priceville in our area. And when I was in high school, which I graduated 2014, Priceville was a joke. Uh, Like this is the place, like I'm pretty sure everyone in the area scheduled them for either senior night or home. (laughs) And so, I mean, to go from that to winning 10 games and making it to the second round of the playoffs in three years, I'm like, all right, this guy's legit. Like he knows what he's doing. And so I sit down with him and I'm kind of caught off guard because he doesn't have the kind of classic head football coach demeanor. He's, I mean, 
he's really similar to me, honestly. He's a little bit more quiet, a little bit more reserved. He listens, and he's not like the typical alpha, you're going to bow down and do what I say type guy. And so throughout the conversation, I was just kind of trying to fill out what they did. And so he was like, I mean, we've been doing bigger, faster, stronger. You probably think it sucks. I don't care if you don't do a single thing from bigger, faster, stronger. I just don't really know anything about this. And this came in a package so that it made it easy for me to know what to do. And so I went with it. I was like, okay, cool. That makes a lot of sense. And he was like, anything in the program you want to get rid of, I don't really care. Um, one of the things, if people have followed me enough, I wouldn't say I'm anti-Olympic lift because I love the jerk, but I personally do not think the clean brings as much value as a lot of us want it to bring and want to believe that it brings. And so I asked him about that and he was like, dude, you can get rid of any lift you want. Like if you want to get rid of the clean, get rid of the clean. If you want to get rid of the back squat, get rid of the back squat. The way I run this program, if someone comes to me and has a passion about what they do, that tells me they probably know more about it than I do. So I'm going to trust them and let them do what they want. And so, I mean, it was the same thing. He said, our baseball coach said, came to me and said, he really wants to coach DBs. So I'll let him coach DBs. And I don't tell him how to coach the DBs because I assume that he's probably going to know more about it than I do because he's passionate about it. And so that meant a lot to me. I was like, wow, that's a high level leader. Yeah. And then, so I kind of keep throwing it out and I was like, so what have you guys been doing conditioning wise? Um, in Alabama, you're going to see anywhere from someone like Brandon Herring and John Hersel running a program like they do to some guy who's making kids run repeat 400s, repeat gassers, 300 yard shirt, 300 yard shuttles. It could be anywhere in between. And so coach Foster, he looks at me, he goes, you ever heard of the feed the cats oh, guy? And I was like, no freaking way. And which I'm not like 100% feed the cats. I do a little bit more conditioning and some more extensive yep. work than a pure feed the cats program, but I love it. And I think it's done phenomenal things for high school football as a whole around, all around America. So I was like, okay, I don't know how many jobs in the country right now are better jobs than this job. Yeah. And so I took it without much hesitation. Wow. No, that's, that's unreal. I mean, that just, it just sounds like the dream, right. To have uh, yeah. coaches on board and yeah. So that, uh, that tweet you sent out of working with uh, my coaches have a growth mindset. It makes sense. And yeah, there, there's yeah. a lot of good takeaways in there for the, the young coach, the old coach, whoever, whether you're the sport coach or you're the, the in the weight room uh, on the field guy. When you're going through that interview process, right, you've, you've talked to all these coaches, you're feeling out a culture, that type of deal. What, uh, if any, what, did you have any hesitations as far as, are these coaches just kind of saying this stuff to make me feel good, admin stuff? Um, has what was presented to you matched up with what you have going on with your situation, which it sounds like it does, but I think it's just kind of important for coaches as they interview for these jobs to learn whether or not uh, there is some truth, whether there's not truth behind, because every job's going to have their issue. 
um, but yeah. whether whether or not it uh, has matched up for you. And then with that, uh, what has been the biggest uh, surprise to you as you've gone here in this first couple of months? Yeah, so, I mean, I was in sales for a brief period of time. So I look at a lot of things as a form of negotiation. And I'm aware that, I'm fully aware that a lot of times in negotiation, people are either saying things to make it sound better than it really is, or they're trying, they're saying things because they don't want to be confrontational and they don't want to, you know, say anything that sounds mean, but I never really got the vibe from anyone that I spoke to in the interview process that that was any of their goals or intentions. So, I mean, our, like I said, our assistant principal, he's been gung ho about this from day one. They're like, he shows up, I would say to 75% of our workouts, his daughter is in our program. So, I mean, he enjoys seeing her in that environment, but, and like, he's not there seven to 11, but he might pop in once or twice, sometimes three times throughout that time period and just see what's going on. And so he'll like straight up, if he sees that a team's kind of slacking and not really putting in the numbers they should be, he's going to call up the head coach and be like, Hey, where's your guys at? Or where's your girls at? Like we all, awesome. we were all in agreement from the beginning that like this was going to be a priceful athlete thing. Where are you at? And so he's been like, he's been pretty solid and steady the entire way that he ha- he does have a legitimate vision for this and he's going to do his part to see it through. And then what was the second part to your question on that? Doesn't matter because uh, biggest... you, you, you did great. You crushed it. <laughs> um, I think you asked what the biggest surprise has been. Yeah. Number one, that, having an admin that involved. Um, you know, I mean, I don't expect it to continue, continue to be that involved once the school year starts because if you're an assistant principal, you have an extremely full plate. But I wasn't expecting him to be here this summer. So it's entirely possible he keeps being that active in it. But it's, it's all your stuff after school. Yes. So during, once the school year starts here in what, like two weeks? Yeah. We'll be from two to four Monday through Friday. Okay. And so we've been kind of going back and forth, making sure that we've got, we're adequately serving each team in that time period. So same thing, like they want it to be a year round model for all athletes. So what we kind of landed on is similar to how we broke groups up in the summer. We're going to go two to three for in-season athletes. In the fall, we're going to go ahead and slot those winter sports in so that we don't have to change the schedule up once winter sports come in. So football will be their own group because they pretty much max out the capacity of our weight room. And then men's and women's basketball and volleyball will be a group together. And so basically what those two groups are going to do is they're going to rotate between a lifting day and a speed day on so football and volleyball their speed days will be extremely simple you're going to come in you're going to warm up you're probably going to time either two types of sprints or maybe one sprint and i'm playing around with the idea of using our dasher to time five ten fives and add that to the leaderboard i don't think the five ten five is a great measure of agility but it does give you a max speed change of direction exposure. And 
I've been kind of toying around the idea with uh, speaking of feed to cats, Tony Holler's max speed reserve kind of trickling down to making conditioning better. I am questioning if we improve the max speed, you can change direction. If that's going to trickle down to almost kind of like a change of direction reserve and make your in game cuts easier. Um, brief. I mean, when I say briefly, I mean like as of yesterday was the first day I started toying around with that idea, <laughs> but so what will, what will for sure time we'll keep doing, uh, we have three different 10 yard flies we do. One is a five yard lead in one. We've been slowly increasing the fly distance to increase the max velocity, but we try to hit the max velo point. And then the third we do is actually a curved fly 10. So what I did this summer is I made, or I painted out a semicircle. And so basically I just reverse engineered what radius I would need to make a circle that had a five yard lead in or like a half circle where there was a five yard lead on, on each side. And then that middle piece was 10 yards long so that we could do five yard lead in from either side and then go straight into a 10 fly on that. And it actually worked out to where it's almost the exact same circle as the three point line on a basketball court. So what's nice is as we're kind of transitioning to the school year, we can actually just use the basketball court, which is nice because the curved fly 10 is impacted by surface way more than any of your linear stuff. Like, if it's been, we went like three weeks straight without rain and that ground was so hard that it was almost like sprinting on a track. And then it rained like three days straight and our times across the board dropped by like two tenths of a second or not dropped, but times got two mm-hmm. tenths of a second slower. So having the constant surface of a basketball court will be great for that one. So we'll definitely have those three of the five yard lead in curved five yard lead in and max velo and then we may use the dashers for five ten five as well but for an in-season athlete you're going to come in and do two of those four time tests and then you're going to get out and you're either going to go watch film or you're going to go straight into practice if you're still in off season there will be a little bit more agility and conditioning work after that but it's still not going to be a super intensive day and so depending on which group you're in you're rotating back and forth between either lifting day or speed day Fridays we'll probably use as either a makeup day in case like someone has like an away game and has to leave school early and can't make it to that session. Or if you're an off season team, you can add a third touch and either get a third lift, a third speed session, or like a mini version of both. And then three to four time slots is that's all of our off season teams. And so most of them will probably already be programmed to go five days a week instead of four but it's still just rotating between a speed day or a lift day every day. I like also, that. I will bring up uh, one interesting part about this job is I don't have an assistant or anything, so I can only be in one place. So I do have to kind of lean heavily on my sport coaches and had to teach mm-hmm. them like how to run the lasers and like what I'm looking for in the agility stuff, which a lot of strength coaches are against. And I don't know if that's like a control thing or not trusting other people and afraid they're going to screw it up thing. But if you don't think a sport coach that constantly coaches people in an environment that is purely agility, (laughs) if you don't think they can coach agility with some basic cues and then write down times from lasers, 
you are drastically underestimating your sport coaches. Yeah, our uh, our couple of our football coaches would come to our workouts, and basically I would just set the laser up, and normally what I do is my kids write down all their times, like the because in class I just set up the iPad, the kids go over and write each other's times down, so I just do that during the summer. But if the football coach comes, he always goes to it and writes everybody's times down. Just because yeah. he start, just because he starts basically talking <laughs> trash to the kids about different yeah. kids running fast and stuff. Yep. Yeah, it's funny seeing the coaches that get really plugged into that stuff. Like uh, our volleyball coach today, when we were timing sprints with uh, our girls, one of her volleyball players, um, she's gotten a lot faster this summer. I've been really impressed with her growth. But we were doing a five yard lead in on the ten fly, and like her first rep, she ran like a one four nine. Second rep, she ran like a one five one. The volleyball coach is like, come on, you ran a one four seven on Tuesday. I know you can do better than that. And she like, she's just like, she's always into it, like bringing a lot of energy and like really making sure that they're always giving their best effort on those. So that's coach, fine. Coaches are going to awesome. coach, right? If they're passionate about it, it, it doesn't matter if it's not their sport. It's, yeah. it's so hard. And like, uh, I don't, yeah. I, I don't know if any of us have uh, kids old enough to be playing sports, but I imagine it would be very hard for me to sit on the sidelines uh, and yeah, uh, years from now be like, yeah, that's fine. I'm, I'm fine with what they're doing and not want to s- step in and get after it a little bit. <laughs> Dude, I was talking to uh, Jorge Sanchez about that because he's still a college football player and a strength coach. And I was like, hmm. do you ever have to just like force yourself to shut up when you're doing like your yeah. college team strength conditioning program? And like, if they're doing something you agree, you don't agree with, you kind of just have to so not true. show it. And so that would, uh, that would be yeah, an extremely interesting. I, I would agree with that. That one's tough. Huh. I don't know how I would do. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to voice my opinion a yeah. little bit. <laughs> Dude, I didn't do well with that in high school. Like I didn't, I didn't know what I was talking mm-hmm. about, but I knew like what we were doing wasn't it. And I made my opinions known. Yeah. And, and so do you think that, uh, has impacted you to want to go down this coaching career? Uh, maybe just not having the experience yeah. that you wanted as, a, as an athlete. Okay. Yeah, I was extremely frustrated in high school because I was always injured and mm-hmm. I always felt like I should have been better because we were very much preached like weight room over everything. And so I've told this story a few times. I pissed a lot of people off with this tweet about it, but. I got to the point where like as a 165 pound wide receiver and I will start by saying we did not have any phenomenal back squatters my senior year, but I had the highest back squat on the team and not like relative body weight, like absolute strength. I had the highest back squat. And so like to me in my head, I'm like, I should be the dude. Yes. I should be faster than everyone. I should be a great playmaker. And I wasn't, I actually got slower. And part of that, and I will say the tendonitis was probably more so my fault because I would just go out and try to jump as high as I could mm-hmm. for 30 minutes straight, trying to get to where I could dunk. And uh, that that didn't end super well. I got two career dunks yeah, but, and then but you got it. Again. Yeah, you did it. Yeah. So <laughs> it worked. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it. you know, being able to say that I'm a 5'9 white dude that's dunked twice, cool. That that's worth oh, yeah. the, the extreme pain that I suffered from that but like 
beyond that, like it, it never made sense to me that all the things that I worked so hard for had pretty much zero transfer to the field. Like I will say I was very hard to tackle and a lot of that probably had to do with my strength. But beyond that, like I was like, something's missing and there's got to be a better way. And so that definitely played a role into me wanting to be a coach. So with that experience, Brandon, how do you use that experience when you're talking to your kids that are, I don't want to say going against what you're doing. Like I can at least speak for me, um, having kids that are asking why we're not maxing out bench every week, every single week, you know, and, but things like that, like how does that experience help you have that conversation with your kids? It depends on the kid. Um, I think not being a great athlete is an advantage as a strength coach because I firmly hold the opinion that the two biggest ways I can give value to a team is number one, I keep their naturally great players on the field or court healthy. And number two, I take those middle of the pack players that have a chance to play, but they're not going to be great. If I can move them from being like a six out of 10 to being, you know, like a 6.5 or seven out of 10, that adds huge value to a team. Yep. Because number one, like if they can make more plays where they were going to have to play at anyways, that makes it a big change. Or if you're able to come in for just like one minute and give some relief reps to those like starting players that are naturally great and let them just kind of catch their breath, that's huge. Hmm. So those are my biggest things. But coming from someone who was always injured and who always didn't understand why they weren't more athletic, I have a unique perspective that a lot of strength coaches who played collegiate sports don't. So I kind of use the example of, did you guys watch the last dance documentary with Michael Jordan? Oh yeah. Yeah. So do you guys remember how they kind of talked about how like, I can't remember if it was the 95, 96 season, but eventually those guys started to work out and they all got better. That's an extremely common experience for people that are naturally gifted. Jordan was Jordan before Jordan lifted a weight. Jordan had all that stuff naturally. The weight room is not what gifted that to him. But what happens is these people who are naturally great, they find the weight room and they get even better. And so when those people go on to become strength coaches, they think back on like, oh, I could barely touch rim. And then I just started doing some squats and deadlifts. The next thing I know, I'm freaking tomahawking on that thing. So they think like they kind of, it's hard for them to disassociate that they were going to be that guy or that girl, whether or not they were in the weight room. And so they think like, Oh, if I just do all this stuff, like they'll have great experiences too. Me on the other hand, I was great in the weight room but I didn't really have the natural gifts that some of those college athletes do. So for me, I'm going to look at it. I'm like, okay, if we think of our weekly time as chips, I'm like, all right, I'm going to get X amount of chips with each athlete. I'm going to spend more of my chips on the stuff that's going to have more transfer to athleticism. So right now we've been working building blocks of change of direction. I've really slow cooked that because one of the things I learned working with middle schoolers is if you slow down, you'll get better results long-term. So we've just been owning fundamentals of change direction. And I'm sure you guys have all, I mean, 
Um, at one point, uh, we mentioned the clinic with Tony Bellani. And I'm sure everyone's heard of Tony at this point. And Tony points out phenomenal content. And that's the type of stuff where if we can start improving agility, your ability to react, how reactive you are, your ability to make the correct decisions at the correct time and be able to cover enough ground to get to that spot, that's going to make more plays. And so if I'm looking at how I'm going to spend my chips, I might give that 15 chips. Like, if, like let's say I'm going to spend 20 chips or let, let's say I'm going to spend 30. Instead of spending 15 chips on change of direction agility and 15 chips on, say, your back squat, I might spend 20 chips on change of direction and agility and only 10 chips on back squat. And like, I will limit volume in that and spend more volume on the stuff that's going to help those middle of the pack players make more impact on the field. Hmm. Whereas someone who's naturally gifted they may go 30 chips on the back squat because they don't understand what it's like to not just naturally make those plays. And so that's where like a lot of people think like, Oh, we need a strength coach who played college because we want them to be able to talk to the kids and be like, Hey, I know what it's like to get to the next level. I can talk to the kids and say, Hey, I know what it's like to not get to the next level. (laughs) And to me, like, both are really important and both carry a lot of value. But at the end of the day, 5.6% of kids go on to play college sports. If you're one of those 5.6%, you're probably going to play college sports, whether you have a strength coach or not. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, I'm not really here to help the kids that are already going to go college, figure out how to get to college. When you're that talented, someone's going to find you. But if I can help the kids that are in the middle of the pack and help them, I'm not going to get them to the point where they're like that 5.6%. I mean, that that 5% of genetics is special for a reason. But if I can get you to where you can look and make a little bit more plays like the 5.6%, to me, that's going to bring more value to a program than helping the 5.6% figure out what it's like to go through the daily life of a college athlete. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that a lot, and uh, I just have to agree with the not being a great athlete has an advantage as a coach because I was not a great athlete. <laughs> yeah, just uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I'm really perfect. just coping for sucking as an athlete. Uh, <laughs> all that's yeah, just me. Glad coping. I'm not the only one. I just that, I made it uh, all. That up. sounds good, but no, I really like how you're um, you're able to sort of break it down of what's gonna move the needle the most for a team. And what's going to be the most impactful for the team-based sport? And yeah, exactly right. Right, not everybody is going to have that five point six percent talent, uh, but if you bring everybody else up, and they can make that big play, or as you mentioned, uh, you know, give the five point six percent kid a rest, and you know, sub in, sub out, that that could definitely drive the needle out of school. And when people are winning. When everybody's participating, the culture improves. Everybody wraps around what you as a coach are doing. It, it just has a, a huge trickle effect up and down. Yeah. And that's, I mean, we have a guy who was an all-state running back last year, and he was getting like 30-plus carries a game. Mm-hmm. So they had to stop playing him at corner. Now, I'll start by saying that we're not in that situation this year because we had another great athlete transfer in that also plays running back. 
So that's an easy way for him to get some rest and be able to play both ways. But imagine that kid doesn't transfer in. An easy way to help your team is to help who's ever second string running back become move that needle up just enough to where they can give him a few reps off to where he could play both ways. Yeah, wow. To me, that's going to move the needle more than just getting that kid's hang clean up to 300. Yeah, that's a, yep. a really good way to put it. Really good. Keep your best players on the field for as many snaps as possible. Uh, spread the love around so that, uh, yeah, the, those kids don't just have to focus on one side of the ball or, you know, just be crappy at defense, whether it's, uh, you know, another team-based sport or whatever. Uh, no, that's good. I really like So, yeah. how, where are you coming up with all this, right? So, that is not... Uh, a typical talk amongst you know the meatheads in the weight room so does a lot of this go back to your experiences uh with cody at uh madison high school um are these just things that you know you've been a coach and so you kind of see both sides to it or you've been a sport coach did kind of just fill me in on that where where's a lot of this coming from Yeah, a lot of it came from my own experiences because, I mean, even throughout college, like I've been chasing this athleticism rabbit. I still chase the athleticism rabbit. (laughs) I go through everything my kids do. I'm timing my sprints every day. Like, I know I'm never going to be there, but I love it. I enjoy it. I like seeing my own progress Mm -hmm. almost as much as I like seeing theirs. So I've never stopped chasing that rabbit. And so in college, I got into, uh, I mean, I lifted a ton. Like we had a great rec center at Mississippi state and I took full advantage of it. And by the end of my freshman year of undergrad, I'd gotten to the point where I could pull 495 on deadlift, straight bar, not trap bar. I could back squat, uh, like somewhere in the low to mid fours. I've always sucked at bench press. Mm -hmm. Even when I cared about my lift numbers, my best bench press was like 265. And so by all like meathead Twitter logic, okay. If I, if I tell you like, mm. all right, which Brandon dunked, was it Brandon that weighed 155, could back squat about 265, 275, could deadlift about 250, and could bench about 185, or was it Brandon that weighed 170 and could deadlift 495, squat 450 or whatever it was, yeah, and bench 265? Point. Which one dunked? Well, hmm. a lot of people are like, oh, the stronger one. No, the stronger one couldn't touch rim. The stronger <laughs> one couldn't touch rim. The stronger one was having a good day when he was touching yeah. the orange box on the goal. And no, I'm not saying lifting makes you less athletic. It makes you slower. Not saying any of that. But at the end of the day, the Brandon that dunked hmm. focused on athleticism. Now, yes. He did it in some misguided ways because he was 16 years old and had no idea what he's doing, and he got himself tendonitis. Not smart. But at the end of the day, he focused on being an athlete instead of focusing on lifting, whereas Strong Brandon focused on lifting instead of focusing on being an athlete, and the only athleticism I was getting was some pickup games of basketball two or three nights a week. And so that cycle happened enough times and it was really hard for me because I had emotional value in the weight room. When like when you're good at something, you tend to put a lot of stock in that thing. 
it's hard for you to say what I'm good at is not really important. And so like, I really wanted to believe that there was a magic set rep scheme or magic, like maybe it was West side, maybe it was five ten five or not five ten five five three one or five by five. I'm like, I'm just doing the wrong one. I'm not like, it was hard for me to say I'm taking the wrong approach. And it was easier for me to say like, oh, I'm just not doing the right lifting program yet. Mm. Once I find it, then I'll be fast. Then I'll be able to jump high again. And eventually, once I got to grad school, I finally realized like, you know what? No, I won't. I've tried them all. I've tried them all. I've ran Smoloff. Oh yeah. That's how <laughs> that's how desperate I was to find something that would finally work. And so I've I went in the exact opposite way. I'm like, okay, how long can I go without lifting at all? Just focusing on the athleticism. And how's that gonna work? And it worked really well for about three weeks. And then after that I got injured. So I learned the value of the weight room. I'm like, okay. Let's focus on, on the specific athletic stuff for improving athleticism. And let's let the weight room's biggest piece be health. Yes, there's going to be performance gains. Yes, if I've got someone that's an absolute Bambi, if I get their trap bar deadlift up, their 10-yard fly with a 5-yard lead-in will get faster, 100%. But generally speaking, I don't understand why everyone on Twitter says high school athletes are piss weak. I mean, by the end of eighth grade last year, like I had kids that could trap bar deadlift 225 for 20 reps because we just kept doing one by 20. I kept expecting to not do one by 20 anymore, but they just kept adding five pounds each week. And I was like, well, I'm not going to punch a gift horse in the mouth. It's still working, so I'm going to let it roll. <laughs> if I can get an eighth grader to trap bar deadlift 225 for 20 reps in two semesters, why are you saying your high schoolers are piss weak? especially if you're a coach that says that you're like a big strength guy or girl. I don't think it's that hard to get someone strong and I don't think it takes too long to do it either. That's good. I, I, I could share the uh, extremely similar experience uh, through my early and mid twenties. I competed in weightlifting, right? Wore the singlet, the shoes, stepped on the stage, all that. Vertical never went more than 26, 27 inches. And then uh, some life circumstances yeah. happened where I lost all of that muscle. And uh, I was just like, hey, I, I want to try to dunk a basketball. Uh, that would be pretty cool. I was, I was 20, 28, 29 at the time. And so I ran a, a triphasic cycle uh, using a safety bar split squat. And then I, I jumped and I sprinted. And eventually... I didn't do it, but I dunked a mini basketball, right? But it was just, man, I was all squatting, yeah. all snatching, all cleaning, all push press, push jerk. Uh, I would do, you know, box jumps and depth drops and stuff like that, just because that's what the the Russians told me to do. But it wasn't wasn't until I I looked yeah. like an athlete that I was able to jump up and put my hand over the rim, and yeah, it's just, yeah, yep. it's. It's just different. It's different than it used to be. And so uh, for me, r ripping through your Twitter here again uh, on on the 23rd, so very recently, you put a tweet out of saying uh, to get fast, you should sprint, sprint and jump up a hill, quarter squats with oscillatory isometric, 
or Cal's uh, RTM split squat. And I, I loved it and I agreed. And so kind of my, my question to you with that is, uh, how do you get there? Right. So an, an oscillatory squat, you're, you're working there at Priceville with, with high schoolers. Um, do you just have a, a rock star middle school program that brings them up? Uh, what does your progression look like for me? Just wondering, right. I agree with your training style. How do you get there? Yeah. So yep. I'll unpack that kind of piece by piece. Um, the first part, I believe some teams at our middle school, which our middle school and high school are not connected. I believe some of the teams do lift. I know football lifts. Um, I may have heard that basketball does. I don't know that for sure. But no, I do not okay. work for the middle school. So we don't have a middle school program here. Which, to anyone listening, after seeing what a middle school program can do at Madison Academy, I 100%, if you're able to get a middle school program get going, do it. Um, so... A lot of these kids are coming in summer before ninth grade and it's their first time lifting or maybe they've like messed around with what their parents have in their garage. But so I'll start by saying the oscillatory stuff mm -hmm. is very hard on the tendons. And if you jump in that too fast, you can absolutely get tendonitis from that. So with those type methods, I have to look at, okay, what's my return on investment for, from a performance perspective? What's my return on investment or like, what's my risk in terms of a health perspective? So I'm really just looking at risk to reward for a team sport athlete. I cannot say for sure that we will ever okay. go to the oscillatory stuff just because while I 100% have seen the results that when you run that stuff, you can get some great performance results. I've also seen where it's gone too fast and people have started getting some patellar tendonitis from it. So to me, going back to my philosophy for training, even if that made them better, if it decreases their health, then it's a net negative, no matter what their sprint time or their RSI or their vertical went to. Now for track and specifically track athletes that don't play like soccer in the spring because soccer gets a ton of change of direction. And so that's a ton of it, ton of work on the tendons themselves. So baseball and softball, not as much. So if you're either a track only or a track and baseball softball, yes. Once we kind of start looking to peak for sectionals in state and in all honesty, we really have to peak for sectionals because our <laughs> section is an absolute bloodbath. Yes, we will use that in track, but for someone who's like, all right, I play football, I play basketball, I play soccer, and oh, I also run track. Probably not, because the workload for your tendons is so high year-round. It's probably going to – I don't want to push that needle and take the chance on taking a decrement to your health, even though I know those methods will bring performance with them. But for the people I will use it for – um, we're all going to do mm -hmm. yielding isometrics. I'm trying to figure out the best way to do overcoming isometrics. I think we can. I've just got to figure out how to make it work. But I would definitely like for you to have at least experienced some overcoming isometric like mid thigh pulls 
or splits like a Jefferson overcoming isometric. I would like for you to experience those positions and have specific strength in the joint angles that we're going to put the oscillations at. And once we build up specific strength there, then we can start going from like, okay, we're going to start with just adding maybe a one or two second pause at the bottom of a quarter squat. Over time, we replace that with like two oscillations. So come down, pop up, relax, pop back down, then pop up again, finish the rep. Then over time, we can build oscillations, like number of oscillations on top of that until we get to the point where we're looking to hit sectionals, hit state. And then once we're done with state, we'll cut them out okay. until that time next year. Okay. No, that, that that's perfect. Hmm. We also don't have hands, so I can't really do the RTM method. Mm-hmm. No, I, I appreciate that. It's uh, everybody will post something on, on the internet, but having that practical of like, how do you actually do it? That's yeah. great. And so, you know, being very specific with the time of the year, being very specific with the athlete, uh, whether or not they're playing multiple sports. And then I really liked just the idea of holding an isometric in the range and then uh, just slowly introducing the oscillations versus just the step-by-step progression of like, all right, now we're doing oscillation, uh, oscillatory oscillations. Here we go. Um, yeah, I thought that was super clever. And, um, I'm guessing you, you tried that out on yourself first. Of course. Didn't love the, uh, (laughs) didn't love the result. uh, (laughs) So I did also get tendonitis from that, but the performance gains were sick. Uh, this time last Uh year or not this time last year, it was probably around late September. One of our linebackers at Madison Academy, he was the type where he's just going to chirp at everybody. And I love talking trash too. So we'd go back and forth at each other all day. And like he'd come into the workout, he'd be like, bro, you're slow. You're unathletic. You're not an athlete. You can't beat me. And so I like, I throw it right back at him. I'm like, dog, you wouldn't even have the fastest sprint times in the girls class. Like what you talking about? And so like, we would always just be chirping back and forth at each other. And uh, first of all, I don't say that with any disrespect to my female athletes. I love all of them, and we had a great run in that class. But uh, so we scheduled a race, and we scheduled to go one on one. Like somebody would be our QB, and switch back and forth between receiver and DB. Oh yeah. And so I ran a full like three block cycle to absolutely get (laughs) my peak performance, so I could smoke this kid. (laughs) <laughs> and the, uh, the peaking phase, the final block involved a lot of the RTM stuff and some oscillatory stuff. Mm-hmm. And it did my, like my, uh, five yard lead in on my 10 fly dropped from a, like averaging one, three Oh, to a one, two, five. And cool. All right. Yeah. Within like three weeks. So yeah, absolutely cooked him on the race. And then we had to go into overtime on the routes, but I won that as well. So, uh, yeah, it was, had a little patellar tendonitis that I had to hit some ISOs to get rid of, but it was 100% worth it. But yes, I test everything on myself before I bring it into, like generally my, like at Madison Academy, I would test it on myself. If I thought it had application to a group setting, I would test it on my middle schoolers. And I'm like, okay, if we can figure out the logistics with the middle schoolers, anybody can do it. So that was kind of my, yeah ramp up protocol for introducing something to the high school class. No, I, I, I like it. And I hope, and I wish more 
uh, coaches experimented on themselves first. It just, how, how are you going to communicate to the athlete if you personally don't know what it feels like? Right. Hey coach, I feel that there's yeah. this weird, like, Oh, I don't know. I've never done it before. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I like it. I like it. And so, uh, I kind of want to tap into your, your track background and, and coaching here. So I'm always interested with asking, uh, track coaches or speed guys differences within season and out of season. Uh, and I'm very Chris Corfus, Dan Victor, Cal Dietz influenced. And Chris and Dan once had a, a, a product or an article uh, written as the million dollar workout, right? Hey, do this, do this, do this. And this is going to help improve your speed. So my question is, what is your million dollar workout during track season and six months out from the, the start of track season or the, you know, the start of um, main competition there? Uh, so kind of a two part question there, but yeah, what what's your million dollar in season track workout look like? Whether that's your your practice or what you're doing in the weight room, whichever direction you want to go with that one. So I'm going to give you like four different cop out. It depends answers. Perfect. To, uh, kind <laughs> I know. Of I love it. Yep, I love it. <laughs> um, first, I will say I am not as smart as Chris Corfist or Dan Victor. Those guys are both absolute geniuses. Yeah. 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 So if we say something where I disagree with them probably take their side and you'll be safe. <laughs> um, That's a good safe. First thing I'll yeah. say, yeah. Um, first thing I'll say, I don't like my million dollar workout is, I think I wrote this down somewhere cause I wanted, yeah, my, like as far as the million dollar workout, the money is the monotony. Mm. Like if you show up and be consistent year round, there's your million dollar workout. Um, yeah, you like that little alliteration there between the the money and the monotony. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, uh, every uh, every good church sermon I've heard, they always have their like <laughs> rhyming and everything going with it. And I'll say to my wife, like, "Gosh, that's what I need. That's what I need here." That's, a, tat- do that's that? a tattoo yes. right there. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Was, uh, my hometown uh, preacher, he would always say, like, "The devil is never good, but the devil is dang good at what he does." Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, man. Talk to him, Stan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, no, but yes, like I don't necessarily have a like, if you do this workout, it's going to make you like, this is what you need to be doing to get better. Mm, Yeah. Like, I think there are a few different buckets you need to fill. Um, And it also is going to depend on what age you're at. So I've been running middle school camps throughout July and And so like, it makes me go back and forth almost because a lot of these kids lack so much coordination and have such horrible sprint patterns that I'm like, does it really make sense to do like max intent sprinting with these kids? And I saw, I was thinking about the same things at Madison Academy because we would have kids who would have pretty good times. Like I would look at, like if I'm only looking at the number on the iPad, I'm like, that's a good sprint. But if I watch the rep, I'm like, that's the worst sprint I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I hope he never does that again. And so that's where it comes into having a kind of like process versus outcome oriented approach. Mm-hmm. And I think there's times where you need to have influences of both. And so with these middle school kids, I'm really focused on the process. We're going to break a lot of things down. We're going to try to find ways to do like part whole practice and try to perfect different parts 
and hope that transfers to the whole. Mm-hmm. Um, with high school kids, it's going to shift. And once you're kind of like at that point, we're going to take a much more intensive, high intensity, low volume approach because how much are you going to benefit from the process of always working on sprint mechanics when your sprint mechanics are already good? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. yes, I think that there's probably going to be a point where improving sprint mechanics will help you more, but I think you're going to have to grow a lot of attributes before you get to that point. So assuming we're working with someone who doesn't have those glaring deficits in their sprint ability. And like, that could be as simple as like, they don't look like a stick figure running anymore. Like they run like a human now. Maybe that, maybe that's your cutoff for like, all right, we're good to go. Like that's good enough mechanics. Once you're at that point, I do absolutely think that max velocity sprinting is a vital piece in the puzzle. Um, also with that, I also don't think it's, it's best practice to go max velocity 100% of the time. I learned that lesson the hard way this past season. I had a kid who could hit over 22 miles an hour Good God. on his like peak fly 10. Holy. But he had the fourth best hunt or 100 meter time on our team by the time the season ended. And so these kids that are max velo is upper 20s, lower 21s are running faster hundreds than him because he got so tense every time he ran like faces grimacing heads kind of like shooting side and side like heads cocked back like pushing chest out and he tried so hard to run fast that he would absolutely die in the final 40s of the 100 Mm -hmm. and one of the strategies we took is we shifted him over to the 200 because he would just run more relaxed in that and like he didn't feel the pressure of having to go fast right away yeah and he felt he felt a little bit more relaxed getting into it. So he saw a lot of success in the 200. Uh, they're dropping down to 3A this year. If he would have ran the time he ran at sectionals in state, he would have won gold in the 3A in the 200. Hmm. So that's something he has to look forward to. But that was a kid that I think my system failed. And, I mean, that's, that's kind of a hard badge to wear because I absolutely love that kid, mm-hmm. and I would do anything for him. And I have to ultimately own, like, only making him go 100% all the time did not address his needs and it failed him. And I will say that he was dealing with some, like he had a bone bruise in his heel and he had a strained calf from trying triple jump for the first time that just lingered throughout the season. And so he only got to participate in 43% of the sprint workouts. And so I will say I'm probably being a little bit too hard on myself by saying that I failed him when he wasn't even able to participate in half of our workouts. But looking at his needs, I don't think only going as hard as you can is what he needed. And so I do think there are other things like something like anything, like number one, tempo runs. I do like tempo runs over wickets. Um, I like tempo runs in general if you have like highly dedicated sprinters that will focus on their technique for whatever, however long the tempo run is Mm -hmm. in the high school setting. When we did just like 100 meter tempos, what would ultimately happen is half the kids would wind up just jogging. And so it didn't look remotely like a sprint. 
And the other kids would get bored by the second or third rep and they would just start racing. And so neither group were doing what I wanted and weren't getting, they weren't putting the work in to get the adaptation I wanted out of a tempo run. So we swapped just doing some extensive wickets Mm -hmm. and basically it'd be 30 meters of wickets, walk back and you would repeat that and you would accumulate the same volume that I wanted from the tempo runs. It was just broken up more. Mm -hmm. And I will say once we started doing that, I did, we did start seeing a lot of improvements in technique and that does give you the chance to run relaxed and feel what it's like to run relaxed, which is a skill. Mm. And other methods that we'll be using this year, once we get to track is more of like floating sprints. So sprint, Mm. float, sprint, float, sprint, float, however many sprints and how many floats you want to put into that. Because I think that also allows you to feel those moments where you can run relaxed. And especially if you're like a 400 runner, that's not to the point where you can just sprint a 400 and you've got to kind of, they're kind of ebbs and flows to your 400 pace. Mm -hmm. Knowing what it feels like to float and run relaxed and knowing what it's like to kick it back into gear through that final finish, I think that's very valuable. So those, Mm -hmm. the ability to max velocity in and of itself is important. And then the second piece I gave right there is being able to run relaxed um, I think a lot of us has read the Charlie Francis me- training method, me- training method. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in there he talked about, uh, where Ben was watching film on Michael Johnson and he was, and Ben ultimately came to the conclusion that the reason Michael was faster than him was because Michael was more relaxed than him. And he said he could look at Michael's eyelids and like Michael would almost look like he's asleep on the track because of how relaxed he was. Mm-hmm. And it's like watching a lion where like a lion runs and their whole face is just like slopping up and down because they're relaxed. So that's the second skill. Outside of that, I do think you need exposure to some of the hard things that is unpopular to mention in track now. I do think you need hard lactate workouts. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be someone who's going to run the 400, the four by four and like 300 meter, meter hurdles or the 200 all in one day. Yeah. So, the, yeah. yeah, I do still prefer a high intensity, low volume lactate approach. So still there, I'm probably rarely, if ever in indoor, we may get into some more extensive work and get over a thousand meters on a lactate day. Outdoor season will probably never get over 800 meters, but I do think that that, and honestly, I think running the 400 does help you enter 200 and the 100. And something that a lot of people overlook when they start talking about like a feed the cats track approach is in Illinois, they have like twice a week, a week meets. So whereas like in the South, most of us only run like a Saturday meet Mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. So like there you can say like, okay, we're only going to let the race be our lactate work in season, but you're getting two max velocity, max intensity, probably multi-event exposures twice a week. So if like, if you're a 200, 400 runner, then on Tuesday and on Friday or Saturday, you ran max effort 200s and 400s. Whereas if you're in the South and you only let your meets be your only lactate work, then it's only on Saturday. And I say the South, I'm speaking like North Alabama. If you only run, let your, if your lactate work is only in the meets, you're only getting that exposure once a week. So the originator of Feed the Cats with Tony their team's getting two high intensity lactate workouts a week. Your team is only getting one. 
And so I think that's an important difference to like caveat to mention if we're talking like how much lactate work you should do in season. So for us, we will like, since we only have one meet a week, we will absolutely have a hard high intensity lactate workout earlier in the week. Uh, well, Hey Brandon, kind of last question for you here. And this one could be as, as short or as long as you want to answer it. But so far through my notes, I've seen uh, glimpses of Tony Holler, of Cal Dietz, of Chris Corfus, of uh, Charlie Francis. You've mentioned oscillatory isos, which is a big one. And uh, when you're tar- talking about the part versus whole approach, uh, dare I say that was possibly some Franz Bosch uh, thrown in there as well. And so, man, I just want to know, who are some of your main influences or um, how is it that you've learned so much or that you're constantly learning? Uh, just give people an idea of, again, who has either influenced you or where you're going to figure all this out. Cause for me, like I'm, I'm super, super impressed and kind of blown away at all these different systems and thoughts that you're combining uh, to help your athletes. So a lot of that came in, I basically got a PhD in Joel Smith's podcast through while I was in grad school. Mm. Um, yep. The Just Five Performance yep, Podcast, yep. I'll go ahead and shout that out. Their stuff is yes. great. I've listened. I'm a little bit behind now uh, that I don't have as much time as I did in grad school, but I was up to date with pretty much everything back then. So awesome. a lot of those guys gave me really phenomenal ideas. Uh, the mm-hmm. people you all mentioned have definitely had influences. Um if I'm giving like my top overall influencers, I'll kind of break it down by category. So on okay. the tendon health side of things, Keith Barr is probably number one. Mm-hmm. Um, Keith Barr, easiest way to get to know him, uh, look up his podcast on Spotify or Apple Music, whatever you're using. Um, specifically the one with Joel Smith on Just Fly and the Jacked Athlete podcast with Jake Tura. Mm-hmm. Both of those are phenomenal. Um, if it overwhelms you, it overwhelmed me too. I had to listen to his episode on Joel's four times before it finally made sense. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it just so happened that my paper topic for my ex biz class in grad school that semester was how tendons work at high speeds versus slow speeds. Wow. So that okay. just was kind of like a, you know, God's hand and divine intervention in letting me dig deeper into the tendon stuff. So I got to write like a 12 page paper on that and give a presentation on it. So that helped a lot. Um, also, if you listen to my episode, that'll be coming out soon with John Mark raspberry, John Mark made the terrible mistake of telling me to go full send on tendon health. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so if you listen to that episode, make sure you listen to those episodes with Keith Barr beforehand so that it at least makes some kind of sense. Got it. Um, okay. but it, with some of the other, with some of the other slower methods there, uh, Charles Poliquin and Ian King. So both of that, those guys were big into the tempo training side of things in terms mm-hmm. of like talking barbell now, not sprinting on the sprint side, uh, Bill Bowerman and Charlie Francis are probably my biggest ones. If you don't know Bill Bowerman, look up and find whatever you can on him. The stuff he was doing in the 1950s and 60s was just insane. Like he would have he would have been seen as a visionary and ahead of his time if he was a coach right here in 2022. He was, I mean, I genuinely think one of the smartest coaches that's ever been in the field. If you don't know who Bill Bowerman is, he's co-founder of Nike with Phil Knight. Mm-hmm. 
and was also a phenomenal track coach. Uh, Tony Hollers definitely mixed in in the track side of things. Uh, Tony Villani, as I mentioned, on taking kind of like my change of direction agility approach, he's had a big influence on me there. And then Andrew, Anatoly Bondarchuk has also had mm. a lot of influences in the weight room. So those are kind of my main influences. And you can see a lot of them, even if it's small parts from different ones, and like there are other people, because um, the minimal effective dose is a long rabbit hole, because I think a lot of people misconstrue that. I kind of look at that as if you have a bell curve, that kind of middle, like you're within the first standard deviation, I consider that to be the effective dose. And I'm kind of looking to ride that left end of the bell curve. And so I think coming from um, like a Dan John easy strength and uh, Mel Sif, or uh, not Mel Sif, uh, Dr. Yesis one by 20, I think both of what those guys were really saying is a moderate dose of lifting is better for athletes because they have so many other stressors and stimuli in their life that if you throw a huge dose at them, they're probably not going to be able to adapt to all of it. Hmm. So hmm. those guys both had influences in like the amount of volume I program. And I mean, it almost kind of comes in together, like with the kind of Tony Holler philosophies that I just kind of wind up being a little bit lower volume in a lot of areas. It's awesome. Yeah. I would say those I... probably wrap up the major influences in everything. No, it's great. And I, I, I'm just super impressed of how you're able to take all these different coaches, different ideas and combine them into a, a pretty quality system. I, I obviously have never seen, you know, one of your track practices or, you know, one of your weight room sessions, but man, I'm super impressed because there's, there's all this is out there, right? I, I mean, I agree. I, I probably have a PhD and uh just fly podcast as well. Right. And I, yeah. I've heard it all, but being able to bring it all together, uh, absorb it, modify it, apply it to steal that from uh, Coach Anthony Donskov, uh, and apply it to your settings is that's where the art behind all this comes, which is it's yep. awesome, it's super impressive. Uh, but hey, Brandon, uh, I know you guys have your combine tonight. I know you gave us a, a ton of your time tonight, both when we were recording and and not recording. So just super grateful. Uh, for giving this opportunity to sit down and everybody make sure you go follow Brandon on Twitter. He puts out a ton of great stuff uh, and it's at Brandon underscore capital L underscore pig. And dude, just thank you. Thanks again and have fun. I know you got your uh, school year coming up here uh, very shortly. So whatever kind of days or weeks left of summer you have and uh, enjoy them and, and good luck in the, the upcoming uh, you know fall and seasons and all that. Heck yeah. Thank you guys for having me on. This was a blast. Amen. Oh, yeah. This was awesome. I took a ton of notes, Brandon. So thank you. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to another episode of Victory Over Self Radio. Episodes are available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we also have videos and clips of each episode on our Victory Over Self Athletics YouTube channel. Like and subscribe and let us know if there's any person or topic you'd like us to cover. We'll see you all next time.